All right, here we are in the After Show podcast with Rich. That's me. Cool. Look at that picture. I didn't have as much uh, of this going on. And I am going to be fixing this. Uh, May 5th is when the... Uh, is my next haircut appointment. The barbershops are opening back up on the 1st, and the earliest I could get in is the 5th. So I'll get a little bit uh, less shaggy and a little bit neater. So uh, that's good news. So I'm working on getting the uh, streaming going here. The streaming is going, but I want to be able to see your comments, and that means I need to get this on my phone here. And uh, having a little bit of trouble. There we go. Now it's loading. So I'll bring this up. Get to... There it is. Alright. So, we are live. Alright, so I've got that going. I hope everybody had a great week, and I hope you're ready for the weekend. Have some uh, interesting things going on here in and around the Smokies. Uh, some of the state parks will be opening up soon. Uh, we've got hopes that the Great Smoky Mountains will be opening up soon. Uh, and all of our businesses are going to be opening up on uh, the 1st, which is next week. So that's exciting. And uh, some of the shows are going to be opening up on May 9th, uh, some of the local area shows. And a lot of the local attractions are opening up as soon as possible. So we're going to start getting back into the real world. And if you were watching the show this morning, you know that sporting is beginning to... Uh, rise from its deep sleep and we had some sports news last night the uh, nfl draft the opening round took off and uh, 15 of the first 32 players selected all came from the sec so we're pretty happy about that and we can talk about that if you'd like um there we go so we can talk about the draft we can talk about nascar and their eye racing which is kind of funny and uh, interesting and how they plan on moving forward and we can also talk about uh, any other sports news that you wanted to talk about college football are we going to have a season are we not we don't really know yet and if we do have a season what's it going to look like NASCAR uh, is getting ready to start doing live racing again uh, they'll be doing it in front of empty stadiums so we'll see how that plays out uh, we don't know whether the NFL will be having games or how many games they'll have, so that's all to be worked out yet. And, you know, what's going to happen with baseball? We're still early in what should be baseball season. Will they play an abbreviated schedule? Um, we'll just have to wait and see. So uh, lots of different things in the sporting world to talk about. And uh, then the other thing we're going to talk about here as we get through the show is risk assessment. Frank started talking about this yesterday on Ask Frank, and it's all about what level of risk are you willing to accept in your life, and how do you manage that? And that's something that I do in my professional career. Um, we work with industrial companies. We work with folks that deal with hazardous wastes, with radioactive wastes, and we talk about risk assessment as part of their daily job and how, as workers, they are the ones that decide how much risk, risk is, access, is acceptable and how to manage that risk to keep themselves safe. And we're going to talk about that in general, and then we'll focus down and look at it from the COVID-19 perspective, because I know that's something that a lot of people are interested in. So, 
And I'm having a little bit of trouble with my signal here, but let's see, it looks like it's going to come back. So if you're making comments, please keep doing so. And as soon as I get to see them, I'll answer them. So we'll start off with sports because that's, you know, what I kind of do. And we'll start off with the NFL draft. The NFL is taking an unusual approach to the draft here in the COVID-19 age. Instead of a huge uh, ceremony and a great gathering of reporters and athletes and athletic directors and all the pageantry and hoopla that's come to uh, note draft day, instead, everybody stay at home. So you've got a few anchors who are in the studios in Bristol, Connecticut, where ESPN is uh, located. But the rest of the commentators are all sitting in their home studios. And uh, this has been a great time of year for people who like home studios so or, or who build them. So um, they're sitting in their home studios. The players are all at home and uh, surrounded by their family, which made for some interesting moments last night. I don't know if you watched the draft. I did. And uh, the players' reactions were a lot different when they're sitting at home surrounded by their family than when they're on stage and playing to a crowd. And I thought that was fun to watch. So if you want to watch the rest of the draft, the NFL obviously is making a very big deal about this, and they're providing lots and lots of coverage. Um, It's on ABC. It's on ESPN. It's on the NFL Network. It's on several of their apps streaming if you don't have access to uh, the uh, network stations. And they're covering, for the next uh, two days, tonight and tomorrow night, they'll be covering the remainder of the draft. So last night it got started off, and uh, I don't think it surprised anybody that Joe Burrow from LSU was chosen first by the Cincinnati Bengals. So there was no suspense, there was no shock. He was picked. And now it becomes the process of coming to an arrangement where, you know, he will be in Cincinnati and play for the Bengals. One of the interesting things about the NFL draft, and this happens in a lot of professional sports, is the team with the worst record gets to pick first. It's a way to try to keep a little bit of balance and parity in the league so that teams that are having trouble performing can get the help they need to advance. And it's good for the fans, it's good for the teams, it's good for the sport. It's not always good for the guy that gets drafted first because he may be the best player in the uh, nation that year, but he's going to the team that can probably make the least use of him. And that's got to be frustrating for the players. All right, still having trouble getting this running, so if you're commenting, uh, I'll get to you, I promise. Uh, Hopefully that'll get started up and we'll work properly here in a moment. So, you know, if you can imagine being Joe Burrow, who's used to playing for LSU, you know, a team that had all the pieces to surround him so that he could excel and the team could excel, and now going into an organization with lots of serious questions and needs, it's going to be very difficult for him to uh, have the kind of career that he wants to have. And uh, that's something that you know, he has to work to overcome. And we've seen lots of different players handle it differently. 
um, go back to Peyton Manning, who was chosen uh, first in the draft and went to the Colts, who had lots of troubles. Well, the Colts talked to Peyton even before the draft and after the draft and said, here's our plan to put a team around you that can win. And they got Peyton to buy in on it, and he took it to a Super Bowl, and he made the Colts relevant. Um, on the other hand, you've got players who will absolutely refuse to sign with the team that drafted them, and that puts them in a tough place because the team that drafts them is in the driver's seat. So we'll see how this plays out with Joe Burrow. If uh, the Bengals can put together a package that will A, reward him financially, but more importantly, put him in a position where he can realistically uh, succeed in the NFL, because I know that's what's most important to him. When you play sports at that level, the money is important, but the success and the, the drive to achieve is even more important. And if he's in a situation where he can't succeed or he feels like he can't succeed, that's, going, that's not going to be a good answer. So we'll see how that plays out. It's always interesting each year to see how the uh, first draft pick goes. Uh, some other interesting um, facts. Obviously, I'm going to crow for a second. The SEC represented almost half of the first-round picks, and that's never happened before that a single conference has so dominated the first round of the draft. I believe we set the record at 13, and then two more players were chosen. So uh, hats off to the SEC. And as far as the other conferences are concerned that want to say that you know the SEC is overrated, uh, no, not this year. Uh, LSU was a dominant, dominant force on the field. And the rest of the SEC, including Alabama and the rest of us, you know, it's a tough, tough league to play in. And it just goes to show when you see how many players went in that first round. So we had uh, Joe Burrow picked first, then Andrew Thomas from Georgia picked fourth. Uh, Tua Tagovailoa from Alabama was picked fifth. He was the second quarterback chosen in the draft. And one of the uh, knocks on him and the reason they thought he might go further down is he's injury prone. Now, he did a workout, sent out a video to the teams, and... uh, Before the Dolphins use a draft pick on him, they ask to have their own independent doctor do an examination of him and his hip, and the doctor came back with a glowing report. So uh, the Dolphins went ahead and took Tua, and we'll see how he does there in Miami. And uh, we'll see how that plays out. Uh, Tua Tagovailoa is an awesome football player, but if his body cannot stand up to the pounding that he's going to take, that's not good. So we'll see how that works out. And uh, I'm going to give this one more try, and then I'll back out. And uh, just on the phone, we're going to go. If I don't get your comments, I don't get your comments. That's okay. Um, But I do want to answer any questions that you might have. So uh, Tua went fifth, and that was the top five. Then uh, the next SEC player was Derek Brown from Auburn going to the Panthers. Uh, Florida gets into the mix. Uh, C.J. Henderson went to the Jaguars. Jedrick Wills Jr. from Alabama went to the Browns. Um, 
Henry Ruggs III from Alabama went to the Raiders. Javon Kinlaw from South Carolina went to the 49ers. Jerry Judy from Bama went to the Broncos. And it just goes on and on. Now, there are other teams, other college teams, that were well represented in the draft. Obviously, Clemson was well represented. So was uh, Ohio State. So, all right. Looks like we got the video running now. Maybe. We'll see. So, uh, anyway, on the draft, if you have any questions on that, um, send a, send a uh, messenger pigeon, maybe, since uh, my phone is misbehaving. But, uh, so that's the draft. And like I said, two more days, several more rounds. Uh, UT hasn't had a draft picked yet. We didn't really expect to, but we'll see what happens as the draft continues. We're going to shift gears a little bit and talk about the PGA. Pro Golfers Association, there is a charity match that is being set up, and it looks like it's going to be pretty interesting. Uh, Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson are the two pros involved, and they're going to be uh, teamed with Peyton Manning and uh, Tom Brady. So that foursome will play in teams. Uh, Tom Brady and Phil Mickelson will be on one side with Tiger Woods and Peyton Manning on the other side. It's all to raise money for COVID-19 relief, so that's a good uh, thing. They don't know where they're going to be playing yet. This is going to be an actual match. It's not going to be a video game like NASCAR's been playing, and we'll get to that in a moment. So they're going to be out on a course. It's just going to be them and the uh, TV crew that's going to broadcast it. There won't be a gallery Fans won't be allowed out there so that we can maintain social distancing for COVID-19. And there's already some tra trash talk going on, of course. Uh, Phil Mickelson said, after feeling the sting of the first time around, it looks like Tiger Woods is bringing a ringer into the match. Uh, and that's Tiger Woods bringing in uh, Peyton Manning. Uh, Brady jumps in, says he's been waiting four years to get a rematch with Peyton, expecting a better result this time, referring to the playoff loss. Uh, so they're doing a little trash talk. They're having some fun with it. They're trying to build a buzz. And it looks like it's going to be a fun, fun match to watch because if they're already doing some trash talking now, imagine what it'll be like on the course when there's not a gallery to play to. So could be some interesting stuff there. There's still some details to work out. The PGA has to approve the event because with Mickelson and Woods playing, uh, the PGA has to sign off on it. So we're, we're still waiting on them to get their approval. And they haven't selected a location for it yet. So all we know is it'll be sometime in May and uh, should be a lot of fun. All right, so that's PGA. And all right, still not getting a lot here. So I'm going to back up out of it and see what we've got here okay let's see if I can play it now so because it looks like I've got people watching uh, it looks like Fredo McAllister's watching that's good all right still no comments all right we'll see if this works now so that's good all right so let's get to NASCAR NASCAR's been having some fun uh, since they can't do uh, live racing they've really expanded their uh, interactive racing league video game and it's kind of interesting i did some looking into it and this uh in in i racing league has been going on for about 12 years now and they have their own game set up 
you join in, you pay a membership fee, they send you the uh, game software, and you race with other people around the nation and uh, compete for points. They have pit crew piece, parts to it. They try to make it as much like a regular race as possible. They do NASCAR, they do open wheel, they do sprint cars, they've got endurance races. So they've really gotten deeply into this. I had a friend of mine who got really strong into the NASCAR uh, video games. And uh, he would run a race every Sunday. So what happened when COVID-19 shut down racing is NASCAR got their drivers to start racing each week. So they have a pro league for the NASCAR drivers. And they compete at whatever track they would have done in real life that day. And it's pretty funny. They, uh, it's interesting to watch how the drivers behave when their life is not on the line. Um, when they're actually out there on the track, it's very serious. It's very competitive. Um, but everybody is racing with the re realization that their life is on the line, their safety is on the line. So it results in a different sort of racing. When it becomes a video game, uh, there's still that same degree of competitiveness but they'll take uh, additional chances because if the car wrecks, I think they get two resets per each race. So they just wind up in the pits, lose a couple of laps, and then they're back out there on the on the course. So you see some things on here that you wouldn't see normal uh, during a real race. So it's been interesting. It's giving the fans something to watch. It's giving NASCAR something to talk about and to try and stay engaged with their fan base. Now, the good news is we may get back to real racing very, very soon. Uh, right now, NASCAR is working with the governor of North Carolina. Uh, they've already opened up their car shops, so all of the drivers who are based in North Carolina can go into their shops and start getting their cars ready for racing. They're trying to get permission to open Charlotte Motor Speedway for the all-star race which happens uh mid-may and if they can do that and then get the coca-cola 600 running in mid-may then nascar goes back to running a regular race schedule obviously they won't be racing in front of fans but as much as i love going to a race when i go to a race it's generally not for the race it's for the atmosphere the camping the people watching the experience, the race itself, if you want to watch the race, TV is the way to go. Uh, you just get a much, much better view of the race. They've got multiple cameras everywhere, so as soon as something happens, bam, it's up there on the screen and you get to see it. When you're at the race, usually you hear something happening, and by the time you look to find it, it's over. And that's on a short track like Bristol. If you're on a, a super speedway, the action may happen two miles away from you. That's eh, how much are you really going to see? So the broadcast of the race without fans um, shouldn't really affect the quality of the product or the experience as much. People are going to miss not being able to go out and camp, but you know if you're watching the race, it, it should translate pretty well to TV only. Um, I have more questions about NASCAR. I don't know that NASCAR, or excuse me, the NFL, I don't know how football will work with an empty stadium. Um, maybe we should ask the, the uh, Cincinnati Bengals fans or the Cleveland Browns fans.
That was mean. All right, so that's kind of the sports for today. NASCAR is getting ready to roll, and hopefully they will start doing some racing, uh, and uh, that will be good. NFL, two more days of the draft, and then we'll see what kind of season they're going to have. Not really sure what's going to happen with the college football season. I know uh, athletic director for Tennessee, Phil Fonor, said he believes there will be a college football season. Um, we'll see. Uh, I hope so. And that kind of brings us to the second half of the show, um, talking about COVID-19, but more specifically talking about risk management and uh, risk assessment. So I want to start general on this. And like I said, I teach people how to work around hazardous wastes, chemical wastes, things like that, radioactive wastes, and risk assessment and risk management is a huge, huge piece of that. So, it you know, I have a little bit of background in, in doing this. So when we're going into a job where we're going to be exposed to risks, whether they're based on hazardous materials or uh, heavy equipment movement or just industrial processes in general, you know, there's a lot of risks that we get exposed to when we work in an industrial environment. And before we start a job, we have to evaluate those risks and figure out how to manage them. So we do a thing, it's called different names in different places, but uh, the one that we use most often is called a job hazard analysis or JHA. And basically in a job hazard analysis, what we do is we take the job itself, you know, what am I doing? I am moving pallets from here to there. And then we break that down into its smaller components. So if I'm moving pallets, I'm operating a forklift. So now I've got a forklift operator. I've got uh, pedestrians in the area. So there's a hazard there. I break it down into its little steps. So get in the forklift, move the forklift over to the pallets, pick up the pallets, move them to their location, set them where they need to go and lather, rinse, repeat. So I break the job down into the tasks. And then for each one of those tasks, I need to assess all the possible things that can go wrong. Um, so I break it down and I look at, well, there's pedestrians in the area. He's not worth watching where he's going. He can get hit. And usually when we do this, we try to find the most pessimistic person in the shop. You know, the guy who says this is never going to work. This is going to go wrong. This is going to go wrong. It'll never work. You know, the guy that normally you keep up working all by himself so he doesn't bring the whole group down. This is his moment to shine because this is the guy we need. And we set him loose and say, all right, tell me everything that can go wrong here. Now we take that list of all the possible ways that something can go wrong. And then we assess it for the magnitude of the risk. And that takes two pieces. The first piece is how likely is it to happen? And I've got a story about this. I told you guys a couple weeks ago, I worked on an island in the Pacific, Johnston Atoll, cleaning up uh, plutonium. Uh, they use the island, short version, they use the island for testing of nuclear weapons uh, in the air. And one of the rockets blew up on the pad because it malfunctioned and it spread the warhead. It wasn't a nuke explosion, but it spread the uh, nuclear bomb parts all over the island, and they had to clean that up. So I'm out there doing that, and we got a new safety uh, manager from the Army appointed, and the safety manager watched us work and said, uh, 
you know, this is really an industrial process. You guys need to be wearing hard hats. And the problem with that is we're on a desert island in the middle of the Pacific, and the only thing taller than six feet were the buildings and the palm trees. And I was much younger and uh, not very tactful at the time, and I, I asked the safety manager, said, you know, there's no overhead hazards. Why are we wearing safety helmets? And the answer was, just in case. So being something of a smart aleck, I said, well, you know, we're in the middle of the ocean. There might be a tsunami. I think we should probably be wearing life vests just in case. Yeah, that didn't work out very well for me. I got to wear a life vest for the next week. So, but I tell that story because it illustrates part of risk assessment is you got to know the likelihood of the risk you're facing. And then you have to consider the magnitude of damage that could be caused if it happens. So those are the two key factors towards risk assessment. How likely is it to happen? And what kind of bad things will happen if it does happen? And then you score those risks based on those two categories. So if it's very likely to happen and it's going to have a very bad outcome, then we definitely want to do as much mitigation as we possibly can. So we'll put in a bunch of different controls to make sure that A, it doesn't happen, and B, if it does happen, we don't get that bad outcome. On the other hand, if it's not very likely to happen and the impact is minimal, then we don't have to go as far to protect ourselves from it. So that's the process that we use in the job hazard analysis. We take all the risks that we've identified and we manage those risks based on their severity. And that's, that's uh, it applies anywhere. And it applies in your regular life. Uh, just as an example, putting on a seatbelt in a car. Get in the car, put on the seatbelt, and you go driving. Why? Even though the likelihood of getting into an accident is fairly small, the outcome can be drastic if you're not protected. So you put on a seatbelt. That's the kind of calculation that we make every day. So when we start doing risk assessment and risk management, we have to start learning about the risks that we're facing. So when we're looking at COVID-19, especially when it first came out, and let's kind of walk through what we knew and when we knew it. When we first started hearing about this coronavirus coming out of China, there was a lot of concern because there were some factors about it that were very concerning, one of which it appeared to have a very long latent period where you were infected and you were infectious, but you didn't have any symptoms. And what that means is you can spread it a long way to a lot of people before you ever knew you had it. And that's pretty much the ultimate scary scenario for an epidemiologist, because in that case, one person can give it to five, six, seven, eight people, and it's going to explode out of control. When we first started hearing about this virus, the uh, novel uh, SARS coronavirus 2, which is the name of the virus, we were hearing a lot about a long latent period where you were infectious. We were also hearing that very frequent complications, it became very serious and it had a, a extremely high mortality rate. 
And when you combine those two things together, you've got the recipe for a global nightmare. So when we first started getting this information, if we do the risk assessment, how likely is it to happen? It's real likely to get out because of that long latency period. And the potential consequences were extremely severe with a high mortality rate. So we instantly jumped in to the highest level of mitigation possible. Um, and we started talking about social distancing. We started shutting down travel. We started telling people to stay at home. And we really jumped into that high, high level of risk, risk mitigation. There was a study that was done in the United Kingdom that really triggered all this. And the initial prediction was that without taking uh, actions, 2.2 million Americans were going to die from COVID-19. Our healthcare system was going to be overrun. Our hospitals would be ineffective because they would be overloaded. We didn't have enough ventilators. We didn't have enough ICU rooms. And if we didn't do something right away, we were looking at a huge global catastrophe. When you look at that decision-making process, you can see how we got to where we went. Because of the initial indications, this was going to be a huge, huge problem. Their pro the problem with all of this was the information that we were getting turned out to be less than accurate. And I'm not going to get into the political piece on all, all this. Um, I'm just keep going from a risk mitigation factor. The information that we had wasn't entirely accurate. Were there some latent is there some latency period where you're infected and infectious but asymptomatic? Absolutely. Is it 14 days? No. It's a it's much more in keeping with some of the other uh, colds and flus that we're familiar with. So that piece of the likelihood of it spreading out of control went from extremely likely to less likely, and and that's that's fine. We've we've revised our models accordingly and that's good the other thing that we're finding out is that it does not progress to that super serious critical phase in nearly as many people as we thought it would so the two huge risk factors that drove us to 2.2 million people dying unless we take extreme actions suddenly became a lot less a uh, lot smaller they weren't as uh, large of a risk the problem is that we've already started our response and we've ratcheted up to a very high level of control. And it's very difficult to back down from that. It's, in fact, it's almost impossible. And that's just human nature because when you look at it and you say, all right, I'm at this high level of control, how do I drop back down? You know, how do I evaluate it? And how do I say, yeah, we can drop down to a lower level of control, now the risk is smaller, because the instant response is, well, what happens if somebody dies? You know, did you just kill somebody? And, and we hear a lot of that, and I'm going to talk about that when we get closer to the close. So understanding how we got where we got to, now we have to figure out a way to step down so that our response is equal to the risk. And like I said, that's a difficult, difficult process. So 
we're now at the point where we have a realistic appraisal of what COVID-19 is going to do. Uh, we're looking now at maybe 60,000 deaths in the United States, maybe a little bit less, maybe a little bit more. Um, but that's the right area of magnitude of what we're looking at for COVID-19. So now we get into the final phase of risk assessment and management, which is now we need to implement controls that A, are at the same level as the risk, and B, don't cost more. And I'm not talking about cost just in dollars, but cost in lives, in material, whole nine yards, that don't cost us more in the long run than what we save from dealing with the disease. And that becomes an exercise in understanding what are the downstream costs of the protective measures that we're taking. Uh, and you can measure them a lot of different ways in the disruption in lives, in the loss of businesses, in the loss of life due to uh, secondary causes like unemployment, depression, things like that. Uh, the loss of access to medical services. I have a friend whose wife was uh, diagnosed with a uh, breast cancer and she needed to go in and get a biopsy to confirm the, di the uh, diagnosis and couldn't because elective procedures were all canceled getting ready for COVID-19. So imagine that, that level of stress of your doctor saying, yes, I believe you have cancer, but I can't sent you into the procedure to prove it because those procedures are all canceled for the duration of this crisis. It's not all about, yeah, I want to go to the store and go shopping. We've lost access to a lot of preventative medical care, and that's going to cost lives down the line. So there are some very real issues on both sides of both maintaining our level of protection, but B, letting people get back to their normal routines. So one of the things that we need to be able to do in order to bring these controls down to a level that is appropriate for the level of risk that we face is to take a step back and remove the fear and the emotion that's driving our decision making. I spend a lot of time on the internet, and if you're watching this podcast, I'm going to say you do as well. So you've seen a lot of the interactions, and it doesn't matter, like Frank was saying yesterday, it doesn't matter which side you're on, uh, people are going to be upset. If you support maintaining the controls uh, where they are right now, people are going to be upset because they, they need medical treatment, they want to get out of their house, they want to go back to their life, they want to make sure that their constitutional pr uh, freedoms are protected. You know, they've got legitimate concerns. On the other hand, if you're one of those that want to get back into normal life as quickly as possible, you got to understand the folks on the other side don't want to take your rights away. Their concern is to make sure that they're safe and their families remain safe. So the first step is to recognize that there are legitimate concerns on both sides of this and that the people on both sides of this are people of good intent, goodwill, good-hearted, who are trying to navigate through what is a very scary process. So if we could please step back from the whole, you want people to die, you want to be a tyrant, garbage, if we can drop that for a while and start a sober 
inspection and reflection on what the level of hazard is and what the appropriate mitigation steps are, that would be very nice. I would appreciate that. So once we do that, once we can get the emotion out of these decisions, the next step is to gather as much information as possible. Now, remember what I said when I started out, that we all formed our initial impression based on uh, information that turned out to be incorrect. So, you know the saying, you can never get a chance to make a second chance to make a f good first impression. Well, we've got a really bad first impression, and we need to get past that and look at what's really going on. And once we do that, once we get that information out there and understand what the actual level of risk is, then we can respond in a more measured and appropriate fashion. So that's the process that we need to go through. And like I said, it's very, very difficult to drop back like that and get started with a new understanding. So it's going to take some time. It's going to take some effort. But uh, I think we can get there, and I think we can get it done. So the last thing that we're going to talk about, and, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm still not getting comments or anything on here, so I hope I'm answering any questions that you all are coming up with. But the last piece that we're going to talk about is your personal safety. And I cannot stress this enough. That is the key to controlling not just COVID-19, but any infectious disease. And here's what I'm talking about when I say that. If you take care of yourself and make sure that you are not going to get infected and that you can't spread the infection to anybody else, it doesn't matter what anybody else does. Okay? Let me explore that a little bit. If, take me for example, I have evaluated the risks based on my knowledge of what's, what COVID-19 is and what it does, and I understand that at my age, I am crossing into the territory where if I got COVID-19, I would have some measurable risk. It's pretty small, but there is some measurable risk that I could have problems. I have evaluated that based on the other risks in my life and I have taken the appropriate level of controls for myself. And what those controls are, and I do want to stress this is me. Yours may be completely different. You could be in a different uh, family situation. You have to make your own assessment. But for me, I'm not wearing a mask when I go out in public because I am maintaining a solid social distancing from everybody that I do not know or that I don't know has been uh, maintaining that social separation. That does more for me than anything else because I know that even if there's somebody who's uh, asymptomatic but may have the virus, I'm staying far enough away that I am not at risk of becoming infected. However, because I do go out in the public area, there are three members of my family um, who have significant risks. My son has uh, reduced lung capacity. Uh, I've got a niece who is on immunosuppressive therapy, and I've got an elderly aunt whose health has always been frail. I will not see those three people until one of two things happens. One, we have an effective treatment, or two, we have an effective vaccine. Of those two choices, uh, option two, the vaccine, I'm not counting on. 
when I hear people say we shouldn't open up until we have a vaccine, I, I need, need them to know a couple of things. One, we may not ever get a vaccine. This coronavirus is related to the SARS virus. In fact, the full name N-SARS-CoV-19, or CoV-2, excuse me. This is the second of the SARS coronaviruses. We don't have a vaccine for the first one, and that came out 17 years ago. The coronavirus, this strain uh, uh, that causes COVID-19, mutates fairly rapidly and fairly easily, which means a vaccine for one strain may only be partially effective for another strain. It's very similar to the flu in that respect, in that we've got several vaccines for the flu, and they try to predict which strain of the flu will be prevalent and issue the vaccine for that strain. If they get it right, we have a mild flu season. If they get it wrong, the flu season's not quite that mild. So even if we do get a vaccine for COVID-19, which is not all that likely, it's not likely to be 100% effective. So I'm not pinning anything on getting that effective vaccine. Instead, I'm looking at do we have effective treatments? And we've got several promising avenues. Um, nothing is uh, graven in stone yet, but once it is, then I know that A, if my son or any of my other family members who are vulnerable get COVID-19, we've got a treatment that's gonna uh, preserve their life. And in that case, we're good to go. But until we have that, I'm going to be very cautious around them because they're compromised. And I'm going to do that regardless of what the governor says or the president says or anybody else says. Don't care. It's my job to maintain my health and my family's health. So I'm going to do what I think is best for them and for myself, regardless of whether I get an all clear from Governor Lee. Because... Again, I've done my research, I know what's out there, and I'm going to take care of my family. So if each and every person does this, and I am an optimist, I believe most people will. I believe most people are smart, and in an individual level, they're going to take care of themselves, they're going to take care of their families, and when they do that, we've already done 90% of what's necessary to stop COVID-19 in its tracks. This really is an individual battle. We've seen what happens when we try to impose controls at the state and the national level, and it doesn't really work out very well. This is not a one-size-fits-all situation. Local administrations with good information and uh, good strategies are where this is going to be, uh, where this war is going to be won, not at the national level. And even more importantly, at the individual level is where we can take care of ourselves and our communities. So what does that mean as we start to go forward and open things up? It's really very simple. If you don't think it's safe for you to go and go eat dinner at a restaurant, don't. Stay home. Absolutely not going to argue with you. If you don't think it's safe to go to a baseball game, don't go. Stay home. Keep yourself and your family safe. If you do believe it's safe to go to a restaurant and run it at half capacity and sit six feet away from anybody around you, 
go out and have a good time as long as you aren't sick. I can't stress this highly enough. One of the major changes that we're going to make because of this is if you're sick, you're going to stay home, and that means work. And what that means is that our employers are going to have to adjust the way they do business to make it where if an employee is sick, A, they feel comfortable staying at home, and a lot of them don't right now because they don't want to lose their job, and B, they don't lose so much money that they can't afford to stay home. And that's going to take some changes in the way we do business. But that change right there is, again, that's half the battle. If people who are sick stay home and don't pass their sickness on to their workplace, then a pandemic is halted in its tracks. So these are the things that I look forward to as we move forward. I don't expect to see a stay at half capacity for long. I don't expect to see major venues shut down for long. As we learn more and as we move forward, I expect to get more and more back to normal. I expect there to be some shifts in social customs. I expect there to be a different uh, approach to illness at work. But in the long run, I think these changes will benefit everybody um, without having huge costs like shutting down $3 trillion of our economy. So, in closing, the most important thing that I can tell you right now, in my opinion, is keep yourself safe. Don't worry about what other people are doing. If they're going out, they've done their own evaluation, they will deal with it. If, there's, if you're going out and you have people that are staying at home, don't give them a hard time. They may have vulnerabilities that you don't know about. They may have done a different risk uh, calculation and that tells them that they need to protect themselves and their family I'm never a fan of giving somebody a hard time for protecting themselves and their family whether I agree with what they're doing or not the only place we have conflict left in all of this is in the idea that individuals taking care of themselves and taking the consequences of their decisions on themselves is great but we live in an inter interconnected society, and people may be making decisions that will have an impact on other people. It's very difficult to reconcile removing somebody's ability to make a decision because of its impact on somebody else. And it's one of the hardest parts about being in a free society is how do we regulate freedoms or should we even regulate freedoms because of their impact on somebody else? So there's going to be some conflict. There's going to be some give and take. Uh, please remember what I said a few minutes ago. Everybody on both sides, excuse me, it's not, I can't make an absolute statement. Most of the people on both sides of this are people of good intent. Okay, They're operating in the manner that they see as best for themselves and their family and their community so stay away from the emotions stay away from the negativity don't yell at people don't get upset when they disagree with you reach out understand where they're coming from and find some common ground because the common ground is there all right so went a little bit longer than i expected and hope i got some hope you got some good information out of this um I'm hoping that next week I can talk all about sports. 
because that's kind of what I do, but uh, we'll see how it goes. Everybody stay safe. Keep yourself safe. Keep your family safe. Have a great weekend as things start to open up. If you feel like getting out there and supporting your local businesses, please do. Uh, everybody is suffering because of this. Uh, times are tight. Times are hard. They could get even a little bit harder. So uh, if you can and you're willing, get out, support your local businesses, and uh, be safe and have a great time. Uh, next week, we'll see what happens. Uh, make sure that you tune in to uh, Mountain Fun Life Monday through Friday, 915. We've got Captain Accurate, David Aldrich, with all of his weather. Then at 10 o'clock each day, we have a different show for you between uh, Frank and uh, Kira on Thursday, Kira on her own at home on Monday, uh, Santa and Mrs. Claus on Tuesday, Jim and James doing entertainment on Wednesday, and me doing sports and whatever else happens on Friday. We've got something different for you each day, and that's kind of fun. So uh, tune in, uh, YouTube, Facebook Live, all the good places, and always you can always talk to uh, Alexa to find us. Uh, she knows where we are. She knows where we live. I think she knows where all of us live, which is a little scary. Maybe we'll talk about that next week. All right. I'm Rich Haley. This has been the After Show Podcast, and I will see you all next week. Hope you have a great one.